blue tie this morning. But I chose not to. By the way, the uh, children's message is something new that Rusty's introduced. And I see that elder laughing. Uh, the children's message is something new that Rusty's introduced, and we're going to do it the last Sunday of the month. So thank you to Meredith for, uh, for leading that. Great job. Great illustration about the Holy Spirit this morning. Parents, don't worry about your children. Uh, I mean, if they're over here pulling somebody's hair out, then come rescue them. Uh, but if they're just being children, don't be embarrassed about that. Just uh, enjoy the delight that they are having. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to begin by reading verse 1 through 10. That's not, what, not what's printed in your bulletin. Colossians chapter 2 is found on page 983 of the Pew Bibles. Hear God's holy word. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Colossae, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been given fullness, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord, the psalmist said, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. We know that the dwelling place of God is the church, not the building, but the people through the Holy Spirit. And we Thank you for that this morning. The psalmist also said, my flesh and my heart cry out for the living God. We pray, Lord, that we might yearn for you this morning, that you might feed us through your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is preaching? What is this thing that we do every week in the church? Well, it's two things. First of all, preaching is proclaiming the good news of free forgiveness of sins and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, preaching is stirring up by way of reminder God's people. And when you listen to preaching, God intends to stir you up and remind you of what it is you believe and what is yours in him. And the interesting thing about this morning's passage is that's precisely what Paul was doing with the church in Colossae. He wanted to stir them up by way of reminder. A little background. The church in Colossae was a solid church. Paul said that he had heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love they had for all the saints. They had this love that was given by the Holy Spirit. So these 
folks were solid believers, but some false teachers had snuck into the church and were beginning to draw people away from Christ and the gospel. And they were saying that believers needed special experiences, special insights, special practices to be rightly related to God. And Paul writes to to warn them and to instruct the Colossians regarding Christ and his work on their behalf. He says this, he says, look, Colossians, you have everything you need to live the Christian life. You do not need a second blessing. You do not need a second work of grace. You do not need mystical encounters or the help of angels because you have Jesus, your full and sufficient Savior. In chapter 2, verse 9 that we read, it says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been given fullness in him. That's what the book of Colossians is all about. You know, Colossians is a great book because it's so Christ-centered. It shines like the book of Hebrews with the glory of Christ. It's a great book to, to think about during Advent. It's a great book for us to be looking at this morning. It's about the sufficiency uh, of Christ for everything that you need for your salvation and everything you need for the, your growth as a Christian. So here is a, here's the main idea this morning. Listen to this. Here's the main thing we're trying to talk about. The more you understand Christ and what he has done for you, the less likely you will be to be drawn to or to seek to find rest in or to pursue false gospels. Okay, it's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. The more you understand Christ and what he has done for you, the less likely you will be to be drawn to or to seek to find rest in or to pursue false gospels. Okay, let's think about that this morning. Think about that under two headings. The first is simply this. As a Christian, you are constantly in danger of being attracted to false gospels. You may not think about yourself this way. Paul says to the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, the Colossians, as I mentioned earlier, were a mature, they were mature believers. They were solid. They were grounded in their faith, and yet uh, they needed warning. So this means that false gospels have a very real appeal. In verse 4, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The NIV says fine-sounding arguments. This is the very thing about false gospels. They sound really good, right? They sound really good. We might think of pantheism, the whole view that all, everything in the universe is God and we're all part of this one God of the universe. Well, that's kind of appealing. There's something divine about me, right? Not me, I mean you, me. And, um, or think about pluralism, this idea that all roads lead to God. Isn't there something in all of us that wants that to be true, that all roads lead to God? I mean, it sounds so good. Or think about Love Wins, the book that came out several years ago, which was nothing but modern-day liberalism, that love is God's chief attributes, and in the end, he loves everybody and is going to forgive everybody. And, you know, those things sound so good, and they sound persuasive. But so did Genesis 3, right? It was a fine-sounding argument that Eve 
that Satan made to Eve in the garden. So we're in danger of being attracted to these false gospels. Paul says they take us captive. They, they bring us under their power. False teaching is debilitating to your spiritual life. It brings confusion. It takes you captive. What does it mean that it takes them captive? Well, false, false gospels, they steal our joy. They steal our peace. They steal our security. They bring us into bondage. They, they call into question our sonship. They call into question our salvation. Because what they're saying is you need something in addition to Jesus to be rightly related to God. So what exactly is being warned against here? When Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Well, he's not speaking of philosophy uh, uh, as the academic study in the university. Philosophy just means love of wisdom. He's warning against this specific form of teaching in the Colossian church. People call it the Colossian heresy. There's lots of theories about it, but it was some mixture of secret knowledge, worship of angels, asceticism, and Jewish ritualism. And Paul says, be careful about this false teaching in the church because it's empty and it's deceptive. You know, false gospels are empty, aren't they? They're empty because they don't have real truth in them. And they're empty because they don't have any real gospel power to deliver you from your sins or me from my sins or to transform us into the image of Christ, as Meredith talked about. And they don't offer any real hope. They're deceptive. They appear to have wisdom, but they don't. And uh, notice what Paul says in, in, in verse 8, that they, they have this one thing in common, philosophy uh, and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What they have in common is that they are according to human tradition. This means they're of earthly origin. This means that false gospels are devised not from God's revelation, but in the mind of man. That's where they originate. And, and he says that they are according to the elemental spirits of the world. That's a highly debated phrase in this, in this passage. It probably refers to demonic spiritual beings that were somehow exercising influence in the spiritual world. And uh, these demonic influences were seeking to undermine and detract from the work of Christ. And so the, the net is that, that false gospels are not according to Christ. They're contrary to God's revelation uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And they diminish the power and the glory and the saving work of Christ. And that's why Paul is so concerned. Uh, just a little history. This, this, or go further, this teaching in the Colossian church expressed itself in three ways. Look at verse 16. Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that are to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Three things define this false gospel that was being preached in Colossae, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Let's think about those for just a minute. Legalism comes and it says this to you. Legalism says you need to fulfill a certain standard for God to love you. And when you fulfill that standard, you will be more acceptable to God. The legalist says, I will go to church. I'll volunteer at the soup kitchen. I'll be involved in mercy ministry. I will stop drinking or smoking or chewing tobacco. I will fill up my life with things that I consider to be meritorious so that God will like me. And then there's mysticism. Mysticism comes and says, you need a deeper experience than you're having right now. You need some special qualifications. You see, the, the Colossians were beginning to live in fear of the demonic realm because the false teachers were, to, were telling them, you need the help of angels to overcome the demonic realm. You need special knowledge, and we have that, and you can get that through us. And so they were made to feel like special or like second-class Christians. And this has absolutely been the history of the church, has it not? Whether it's Joseph Smith or the charismatic movement, or higher life, Keswick teaching, somebody is always coming and telling you, you don't have enough. I remember going to a Bible study in high school and feeling like a second-class Christian and being told that I did not have enough. And lastly, there's asceticism. Asceticism says this, you need to pay for your own sins. You take the punishment on yourself. You take the shame. I'm reading through this book, 365 Days in Church History, and one of the entries told about Peter Damien, a Benedictine monk, and in his attempt to fight worldly pleasures, uh, he found it useful to whip himself. And we think this is crazy. And he started this practice where he would read a psalm, and at the, at the end of reading every psalm, he would give himself a hundred lashes. And then when he got through with the whole Psalter, he would give himself 1,500 lashes, whip himself to help him in this fight against sin. And strangely enough, that caught on in the church. <laughs> and a lot of people started doing that. This whole idea of asceticism. I am going to pay for my sins. And whenever you say this, whenever you say, I'm going to go a week without overeating, or I'm going to go a week without giving in to this lustful desire or missing my quiet time or saying anything negative to my wife, you are being an ascetic and you are trying to pay for your own sin. You know, asceticism is an attempt to take the shame on ourselves. Rusty preached a great sermon on this a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago. Um, loathing yourself enough so that you're taking the penalty for your sins. Uh, I read this past week that 25% of internet bullying has been found to be by the person who is being bullied. In other words, they're bullying themselves online to try to gain attention or shame themselves in some way. We're trying to absorb our own shame. And so do you see why Paul says about legalism and asceticism and mysticism, how human they are, 
and how demonic they are. I hope you see that. So now on to the good news. The surest, here's point two, the surest safeguard against false truth, trust and false gospels in your life is for you to know the true gospel, for you to have a great view of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. The surest safeguard against false trust and false gospels in your life is for you to know the true gospel and have a great view of Christ and what he's done for you. That, that's really what Paul wants the Colossians to see. This is the remedy, to see that Christ's person is glorious and the work he's done on your behalf is complete and sufficient. And that's what God wants you to see this morning, believer, because we're preaching on this passage. God wants you to see these two things. First, that Christ's person is glorious. I love the quote by John Calvin at the top of the bulletin. He says this, How is it that we are carried about by so many strange doctrines? Is it not because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us? For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. So you and I need to see the greatness of our Redeemer. This is the great guardian of biblical orthodoxy and the gospel, and it has been throughout the centuries, a passion for the glory and excellency of Christ. And so think about a few things that Paul says. In opposition to the false teachers who claim that they have special wisdom and knowledge, in verse 3 Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We could preach on that verse alone this morning. Because that is a statement that you can spend the rest of your life thinking about. In Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is God's wisdom. He is God's knowledge. He is God's perfect plan. He is the location. He's the source. He is the person. It's in him. You know, people search the universe for wisdom and knowledge. They consult books and professors and libraries. And the, and the Bible says that in Jesus Christ, is all wisdom and knowledge. Amen? And then in verse 9, a startling, amazing statement. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the claim of Christianity, that God stepped out of heaven, he came to the earth, he wrapped himself, or took on flesh. And in that flesh, the fullness of deity dwelled and so Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. Jesus can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And I will tell you this morning, I don't know all of your spiritual condition, no other human being can say that. There is no other human being that can say, I and the Father are one. There is no other human being that can say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This is the great argument of the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. Uh, there's this him in chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the head of the church. The things that are said in the scriptures about Jesus, he's the Lamb of God. He's the King of kings. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Those cannot be said about any other human being. And this is what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to think about the glory of the person of Jesus. And I would just challenge you, as we move into this Advent season, as we think about this baby in a manger, what we're saying is this. 
This baby was different from every other baby who was ever born. He was God himself in the flesh. Last week in his sermon, Rusty said that we are going to spend all eternity discovering the glory of Christ. He was speaking about the future because that's what Peter was speaking about in the passage Rusty was preaching on, our future inheritance. But Paul is talking about the present. And he's saying, I want you to know the glory of Jesus Christ right now. I want you to be consumed with him, to know him deeply. He is a sufficient redeemer and savior and sanctifier. Beloved, if you don't understand that, if you don't understand that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he is a sufficient redeemer and savior and sanctifier, then you'll be deceived by fine-sounding arguments that say you need additional things. So we've got to understand the glory of Christ, but you must also understand Christ's work on your behalf is complete. He says, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells, and you have been made complete in him, or you have been given fullness in him. What does that mean? What does it mean when Paul says to the Colossians, you've been given fullness in him? It's kind of hard to put that into words. It means this, that you have been made spiritually complete in every way in Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 11 through 15. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the, of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So several things Paul points out in this passage. He says, in Jesus Christ, you used to be impure, you used to be uncircumcised, but now you've been made pure, you've been washed, you've been made clean. You used to be in the realm of sin and you were dead, but now you've been made alive by God. You used to be standing under this law of condemnation. It's a really interesting picture here. It says Christ canceled this record of debt that stood against us. In the, in the biblical days, a statement of indebtedness was signed by the debtor acknowledging their indebtedness. Sort of like maybe signing a mortgage on a house now. And what Paul is saying is Jesus Christ took that and canceled it. He paid it in full. Some of you listen to Dave Ramsey. When people pay off their house, they call in and they say, I'm debt free. And what Paul is saying is Jesus has paid off your house. You're debt free. You are debt free. And Christ also has conquered and disarmed all the powers of evil that stood against you. You see, the false teachers were trying to convince the Colossians that the fullness that they desired was unattainable through Jesus alone. And Paul says, nope, it's fully given to you through Jesus. You are complete in him. Do you want perfect righteousness? It's not found in legalism. Here's the problem with legalism. Legalism offers a false gospel because it offers a false comparison. And in legalism, what you're saying is, I can do enough. I was reminded by this in a, a little humorous way. Let me illustrate this. Uh, I work out three times a week. I know it doesn't show. But I can do about 50 push-ups at one time. 
I was talking to my friend Kirby. Some of you know him. He visits here sometimes. And I was asking Kirby, what'd you do this morning? And Kirby told me, he said, well, I got up and he said, I read the Bible and prayed for an hour. He said, and then I, didn't, then I did my exercises. I said, what do you do? He said, well, I do 200 push-ups and I do sit-ups. And I was like, well, tell me how you do 200 push-ups. He said, well, I do 100. And I take a break and then I do 100 more. <laughs> I was deflated. But Kirby should be deflated, too, because I looked this up. The world record for nonstop push-ups is 10,507 by Minoru Yoshida of Japan in October of 1980. And the world record for the most push-ups in 24 hours is 46,001. The problem with legalism is we're comparing ourselves to others and we're using human standards and uh, we're not comparing ourselves to Christ who is perfectly righteous. Legalism will purchase you no righteousness. It won't cut it. Only Jesus has done enough push-ups, if you'll use that analogy, to please the Father. Do you want perfect righteousness? Do you want special access to the very presence of God? The false teachers were saying, you need these mystical experiences, you need deeper experiences, you need this inside knowledge, you need this higher teaching. And, and Paul says that it is Jesus Christ who brings you into a relationship with God. He is the one, through his work on the cross, brings you into the Holy of Holies. You're already there. You don't need some additional experience. Do you want your sins paid for? It doesn't come by asceticism. Last week, Betsy and I watched The Mission by Robert, uh, The Mission, and had Robert De Niro in it. And Robert De Niro kills a man, and in order to pay for his sins, he, he goes to visit an Indian tribe up in the mountains, and he carries this burden. It's all his armor, his sword, his shield, all his armor, and he's carrying it for miles and miles and miles and gets all the way up to the top. And one of the natives cuts the rope. His burden tumbles into the sea. That's kind of good and bad theology. Okay? It's bad theology because he carried it up himself. And that's what asceticism says. Asceticism says, I will, I will shame myself enough, I'll pay for my own sins. And the gospel says this, Jesus has already paid for all your sins on the cross. You don't need to pay for them yourself. So do you see this? Everything promised by legalism, everything promised by mysticism, everything promised by asceticism has already been given to you by Jesus Christ. So he is the remedy. The remedy is to believe and know the true gospel in your heart. It is knowing what you have in him that will drive false gospels and false hopes from your heart. Let me give you this illustration. If I were to ask you this, if I were to ask you, uh, about faith, would you rather have, if you were trying to get your family across a frozen river, would you rather have a whole truckload of faith and three, inch three inches of ice? Or would you ha rather have just a little bitty bit of faith and 30 feet of ice? See, what Paul is saying 
is that Jesus is 30 feet of ice. He is your sufficient Savior. And you and I need to keep our eyes on him. So what are we to do here? How are we to live in light of this passage? Well, it gives us the answer in verse 7 as we move towards closing. Paul says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The translation is a little bit unfortunate in verse 7 because what it says actually is, having been rooted, if you're a Christian this morning and you're in this sanctuary, you have sunk your roots into the soil of Jesus Christ. You are in him. He is your life. He is your savior. He is your deliverer. And now you are being built up. You are learning more and more, as Meredith talked about, to become like Christ and know, knowing what he has done for you. Having been rooted and now being built up. So what, but again, back verse 6, what are we to do? Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is, the, this is the calling of this passage, brothers and sisters, to continue to live in him. Continue to ponder Jesus, continue to study him, to continue to know what's yours in him, continue to let your life come from him, continue to live in him, by him, for him, with him, and through him. Continue to hold in, to him in faith alone for salvation. Don't go back and add anything. You are to know how thick the ice is. You are to develop a great view of the glory of Christ. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and God invites you in this life to discover what those treasures are. And he's given us the Word. He's given us the church. He's given us the Holy Spirit, as we heard this morning. One of the great illustrations I heard in seminary about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight shining up at the bottom of a steeple at night illuminating the cross of Christ at the top. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit shows us what is ours in Christ. And we're to be built up. We're becoming stronger and stronger. It's not, God's, it's not God's intention for you that you stay where you are in your understanding of Christ. You're to be growing in this. You're to be taking on more and more of the knowledge of Christ. So, challenge as we think about Advent. In the next four weeks, we'll be celebrating Advent. We'll be celebrating the birth of Christ. And I hope that you will read this passage into everything you read about Advent. That this child who came, so it won't just be sentimental for you, but it'll be powerful. It'll be transformative. It'll be the gospel to you. Because you're saying this child who came in him the fullness of deity dwells. And so, believer, will you pursue this full assurance that comes from understanding the glory and greatness of Christ? Will you pursue discovering what you have in him? Let me share a challenging quote I read from Al Baker regarding one thing that might keep us from pursuing the Lord. He says this, To seek the face of God is difficult in any historical and cultural context, but modernity presents us with our own set of problems in this regard. The noise, the pace of life, all our technology constantly works to mitigate a zeal for God. Instead of coming in at night after a meeting with spending, and spending time with a good book, I tend to turn on the television and fritter away, or fritter away an hour or two before going to bed. 
Sometimes a television pro program particularly grabs my attention and I stay up too late and do not get up early enough in the morning to spend lengthy time with God. And sometimes while meeting with God in the early morning hours, I suddenly remember, some, remember someone I must contact and quickly send a text message. The next thing you know, I've wasted an hour of valuable God time on lesser things like email correspondence or reading my favorite online newspaper. <laughs> Can you relate to that? Okay, everybody should be doing this because I can relate to that. You're going to check your email and you spend 30 minutes frittering away time. And I think that's a challenge of discipleship in our age. What a great calling. What a great calling to get to know the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you know Jesus Christ this morning? If you don't know him, Jesus says this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I'm just going to tell you that you will never find rest. If you're not in Christ this morning, you will never find rest through legalism or mysticism or asceticism. You will only find rest for your soul through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We praise your name this morning. We thank you that is for all the desires in Jesus. And we pray as a church family, you would enter us deeper and deeper into a knowledge that leads to full assurance because we know what is ours in Christ. May we praise you and walk with you the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number 295. Let's stand. And we'll sing all verses of Crown Him with Many Crowns. Crown Him with Many Crowns the Lamb upon His throne. Hark how the heavenly and